Well, it's good to be back from vacation. We had a great time in Hawaii for two weeks with our daughter and our two grandsons and our son-in-law who was deployed and he got back a week late and was there like two days before we uh, left. I only fell off a bike one time while I was there. I only rode a bike one time. And um, I went on a short bike ride with my 10-year-old grandson and I borrowed my son-in-law's bicycle and it's been a long time since I've ridden with pedal clips. And so we got back to his house, and we were right there to dismount. And I tried to get my left foot out, and I tried, and, and it didn't happen. And I only bruised my ego badly, and that's it. Okay, Bridge Kids, you're dismissed. We missed you all. We prayed for you, prayed for the bridge. We're glad to be back, even though it's winter. Have a little bit different uh, message today. Sort of describe it as flying at fifty thousand feet over Christmas, and I hope it's beneficial. It will be different. This is not what I normally do on Sundays. If you're visiting with us, um, but since Christmas has already passed and I don't get to do a Christmas message, I'm going to do this a little bit differently. Um, Timex, the company that makes watches, asked how, peop- how long people would wait before taking action in a variety of different situations. For example, the researchers found that people will wait 13 seconds before they honk it, uh, for the car in front of them sitting at a green light. So how long will you wait for a car in front of you at a green light that won't move? Um, People will wait for 26 seconds before they shush people at a movie theater that are talking during the movie. I just recently saw that happen on Friday at Star Wars. They will also wait uh, 26 seconds before they take a seat of someone who has walked away from their seat. That seems pretty harsh. Uh, Probably doesn't happen at church. Uh, They will wait... Uh, 45 seconds before they tell someone who is talking too loud on their cell phones to keep it down. I don't enjoy people who talk too loud on their cell phones. They will wait 13 minutes for the table at a restaurant. We typically always wait more than 13 minutes. Shows how patient we are. Uh, People will wait 20 minutes for a blind date. Never had that experience. And they will wait 20 minutes for the last person to show up for Thanksgiving dinner before they eat. Question for you is, how long will you wait for God to provide for you what you need? How long will you wait for God to provide? 45 seconds, 13 minutes, 10 days, 2 months, 2 years, would you wait for a lifetime for God to provide for you what you need? God's people had to wait hundreds of years for God to send His Son to rescue them. In the passage today... um, I'm going to start with Luke chapter 2. This is where it begins for us. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. A really uh, familiar passage on Christmas. A lot of you have read it. Some of you have read it in your homes. Heard a message on this already this year. Luke 2, 1 through 7 says, and, and what I want you to see here is the detail. The planning. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So uh, Luke gives us the information. It happened in a certain time period. Caesar Augustus, a real Roman emperor, uh, gave a decree that a census should be taken. That happened during, in those ancient times. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Another detail that marks this out, a uh, real event. And everyone went to their own town to register because that was normal. Uh, next slide. So Joseph, here's a particular person, went up from the town of Nazareth. This is kind of important. He went up from the town of Nazareth, because that's where he grew up. That's where he lived. 
Nazareth in Galilee, northern Israel. And I wish I had a map for this, but I didn't plan to have a map for, for Galilee. Uh, you've seen it a hundred times on Sunday mornings. But Galilee is up north. Sea of Galilee is up north. And, and he went to Judea, which is in the south, to Bethlehem, a small town. It's also called the town of David because it was where David's family was from because he belonged to the house and line of David. He had to go back to the house of David. He went there to register with Mary, another particular detail, who was pledged to be married with him and was expecting a child. And that's a problem. It's not normal for somebody to be pledged to marry and be expecting a child. Extremely embarrassing situation. Important detail. Next slide. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, male child. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available um, for them. And so we get these details. And then um, Luke 2, verses 10 and 11, we'll jump down. But the angel said to them, this is... Uh, the angel who goes to the shepherds to tell the shepherds about this announcement of this birth. We'll get an important detail here. Do not be afraid because they're probably afraid of this angel. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, which was Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And that was special. The Messiah the anointed one, the Christ, the promised one of old. They had long awaited for this birth. Now let's jump to Galatians chapter 4, verse 5. We, we covered this passage in our study in Galatians uh, at the end of November, and I said we were going to come back to it later, and here it is. But when this set time had fully come, and the title of the message is, is when the fullness of time had come, which is the New American Standard Version, When the set time had fully come, God sent his son. That's Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. When the set time had fully come, that's what this message is going to be about. What is this set time? What what went into it? What were the details? What surrounded this set time that God would send his son, born of a woman, this this unique child is going to be human, going to be born of a woman. You expect children to be human. Born of one, born under the law. We forget this sometimes. Jesus grew up under the law of the Old Testament and had to obey every law, and he did it perfectly. To redeem those under the law, this was the purpose that God sent his son, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And we've talked about this a lot already in the book of Galatians, but that God would adopt us into his family and we'd be given the rights and privileges of sonship, which is not a male-female thing. It's a position, a position of receiving an inheritance. Okay, so um, we come to, and following the outline, you notice your outline's a little bit different. It's a little bit longer. It's a little bit more detailed. Some of you are going to want to take notes. Some of you won't be able to keep up. And don't worry about it if you like to take notes. And we'll make these notes available. If you want to get them from the office, we'll, we'll send you all of my notes on this. Okay, here we go. Number one, God made plans before the creation of the world. When it comes to this whole thing about the fullness of time and God sending his son, God made plans before creation about this. It wasn't like, you know, he, he thought up... A, well, let's see, we could have this cute little manger and we could have this baby born here. God planned this before the foundation of the world. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. I have the passage here uh, on the PowerPoint. His plans were made before creation, verses 3 and 4. Let's see the PowerPoint, verses 3 and 4. Next slide, there we go. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul thinks this is a reason for worship, okay? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Is that enough for you? Are you 
content with every spiritual blessing in Christ? Uh, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. This whole thing about God sending his son, uh, this thing about Jesus Christ and about us being blessed in Christ was planned before the creation of the world. Next slide. His plans were made out of a love according to his good purposes. His plans were made out of love. It's because he loved you. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul is teaching. It's because he loved you. Verses 5 and 6. In love, he predestined us for the adoption of sonship through Jesus Christ. This whole thing about Jesus, this whole thing about why God sent his son to redeem us in accordance with his pleasure and will. It was because of love at the beginning of, it's the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. It's because of love. That's why he did it. He loves you. He loves you now. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely freely given us in the one he loves. His purpose for coming is is, uh, is, uh, clearly stated. It was because of love. It, It was all about God's purposes for Jesus. He had this plan before creation. And God, it says here, freely gave us his son whom he loves. He loves his son, and he loves you, and he gave his son for you. Verses 7 and 8, his plans included redemption and forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Verses 7 and 8, his plans always included Easter. It's never an afterthought. His plans for Christmas always included his plans for Easter. In him, in Christ We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We have redemption through his death on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins. It was a redemption. It was a ransom payment. He didn't pay Satan. It It was a payment of justice for God. God made his own payment for himself. It was a a ransom paid to satisfy the justice of God. And the result is the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. It's by grace you're saved through faith. It's about God's grace, his favor. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You never will be good enough for it. It is grace, okay? that he lavished on us. He just poured it on, and he poured it on. And it was more than you needed and more than you wanted, and he just kept pouring on the grace. He lavished it on us with all wisdom and understanding. Uh, it's his wisdom and understanding. Not we, we often think we know what we want and how we would do it, but it's according to his wisdom and his understanding. Okay. Um, His plans will ultimately be fulfilled when all things are subject to Christ, verses 9 and 10. Let's look at that. There's a time coming. Uh, When the fullness of time came, God sent his son. It was God's timing and God's plan. There's another important time that's coming, has not yet come. Here it is. He made known to us the mystery of his will According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. We have all this information. God's already committed to it. It's a mystery. God's people didn't know what the birth of Christ was going to be about, when it was going to happen, and that Jesus was going to be born a baby. They expected a great king, a great general, somebody riding a white horse, somebody with royal robes, somebody who was going to kill everybody, all the enemies. That's what they expected. That's what they wanted. And then God revealed it. It was the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect. When the times reach their fulfillment, there's another time coming that hasn't coming. It is not here yet. It is coming, but not yet. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. This is Revelation 20, 21, and 22. It, hasn't happened yet. We are not there yet. 
But when everything is subject to Christ, there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more cancer, no more abuse, no more addictions. There's a time coming, but not yet. Can you wait for God? Because there is a time still coming. It's very important. The point is, God has always had a plan that includes you. You are a part of God's plan. You are a part of God's story. And God's plan is unfolding right now. And God's story for you is unfolding right now. And God is sovereign, and he's working things together to honor himself. And you know, I just want to acknowledge that not everything that happens in my life is good. And not everything that happens in your life is good. But I can trust that God can work good through bad circumstances and bad situations that we face. And I don't always understand, and I don't think God expects us to always understand. We like to. We, we wish we had all the answers. I don't think God expects that from us. But he does want us to trust him. And he can be trusted. And there's no simple, easy answer, but you can trust him. And the way I see it, we got two choices. You can either trust God and go with the flow and align your heart with his and go through the bumps and the, and the difficulties with him, or you can disengage and go through them without him. You get two choices. I trust him. Um, okay, second, second main point. Uh, First about is, is God had made plans, and now God made his promises about sending his son to give people hope. God made his promises about sending his son to give people hope. And here are some of the promises. The first one is he would be a descendant of David and be given a kingdom of eternal rule. And this is the sovereign God at work. First passage, I'm going to look at several Passages about promises that God has made about Jesus. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. This is a promise that God made to David during David's lifetime. This happens about a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And David, uh, God says to David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, meaning David when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood and I will establish his kingdom. So it's very important that the Messiah, the Christ, is from the lineage, the family of David. He's going to be a descendant, a human being from David's line. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that, that's uh, really significant there, that last part. It, this is an eternal kingdom. We have not seen an eternal kingdom yet. But this child will be given a kingdom. He will be a descendant of David, and he will have an eternal kingdom, which is a very significant uh, concept. Um, another one we're really familiar with uh, is uh, he will be born of a virgin, Isaiah seven fourteen. He will be born of a virgin, Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So this is a, a miracle. It's miraculous. It's not ordinary. It's not the way babies usually come. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. A lot of information right there, 8th century before the birth of Christ. There will be a virgin. That is a female who has never experienced sexual relations. She will conceive, and Luke tells us that uh, the conception took place by the power of the Holy Spirit. She will conceive and she will give birth to a son, a male child, and we'll call him Emmanuel. And if you know what Emmanuel means, it is God with us. It's a very unique child. And then this child will be God with us. And there's going to be a whole lot more information in the Bible 
to make very clear that this child is God, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, fully human, fully God. So, one more uh, passage. He would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2, 8th century prophecy. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, little bitty town outside of Jerusalem. Back in the uh, first century, it was like a little, real small, dinky town. And there's a prophecy eight centuries before that this child would be born there. You are small among the clans of you who will... One out of you will come for me, for God, one who will be ruler over Israel. He's going to be a king whose origins are from of old and from ancient times. I think that's a terrible translation. I like the New American Standard on this one because the idea here in Hebrew is eternity past. This is a, this is a being, this is a person who comes from eternity past. There's only one, only one who comes from eternity past, and that is God. Angels were created. They don't come from eternity past. Only God comes from eternity past. And that's a little tiny clue in Micah 5.2 about this person. He would also come from Galilee. Remember in Luke chapter 2, Joseph came out of Galilee, Nazareth of Galilee, goes down south, Bethlehem, where Jesus would be born. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Nevertheless, this is Isaiah Eighth century before Christ. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. Those are two tribes of Israel. They settled in the north of Israel. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. And Galilee is up north and it's around the Sea of Galilee. It's where Jesus' public ministry was. God would honor this Land, the land of Galilee, how? By the presence of Jesus, his son. Jesus will do miracles there. He'll teach there. He'll tell about the kingdom of God. People will come to faith in Christ there. By the way of the sea, the Sea of Galilee, beyond the Jordan. And um, he will also, oh, let's go on to verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Who have they seen? The light of the world. People living in spiritual darkness will be exposed to a great light. Of those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And John the Baptist and John the Apostle will call him the light of the world. Also, Isaiah points out that he will be called mighty God. He will be called Mighty God. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. This is one of the great passages that we put on our Christmas cards. We usually put verse, the first part of verse 6. For to us, a child is born. A child will be born a human. To us, a son is given. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. A son was given. It is the son of God. And the government will be on his shoulders. I have never seen the government on the shoulders of Jesus, but I will. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And I just I wanted you to have at least one of those terms. This is Mighty God. That's who Jesus is. That's who this child is. He's also Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Next slide. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. We, we saw this promise earlier, 2 Samuel chapter 7. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You can count on God to do this. It will happen. The sovereign God will work through all of history and all of circumstances to bring this about. Can you trust him with this? The point God still has promises for you to give you hope. God still has promises for you, and the purpose is to give you hope. He wants you to have hope. He wants you to trust him. He's promised to meet your needs, Matthew 6, 33. He's promised to remove 
your worries and anxiety, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, and replace it with the peace of God. He's promised to answer prayer. Can you wait for him? He has not promised that he will remove all of your problems. But he has promised to answer. He has promised to meet you. He's promised to provide for you. Third one, last section. Maybe the most difficult for some of you. God made his preparations in the world. So hang in here and process this with me. I think this is really significant. So we're going to step back. We're, going to be, we're flying over Christmas at 50,000 feet. I don't know if that's a good imagery or not. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. It was just the right time. It was the time that God picked. So first we see God made preparations in the political world. And uh, if you know anything about history during that time, it was a Roman world. Because Rome ruled the day. It was a Roman empire. Um, first point. Whenever, wherever the Romans went, Roman law was established in the empire. Wherever the Romans went, law was really important. And um, law was more important than people. Law was like often the most important thing. You know, there, it wasn't perfect, but it was reasonably just when you compare it with ancient legal systems of its day. It, it was a vast improvement. Laws in the Roman world were meant to be followed. Breaking the law required real consequences, including death. And Roman law was not forgiving. Let's look at a quick map. I did have one map for the day. For the map lovers in the room. So you can see Rome right in the middle. But if you can see the dotted line, that's the, that's the Roman Empire in the first century. That's what Rome ruled. It's really a lot of geography, a lot of countries, a lot of nations, a lot of people groups. The Roman Empire. Okay? So when you think about the Roman Empire, think about this. You can see Spain and France and a little bit of Britain and Asia, and uh, you can see Italy, you can see the north part of Africa, you can see part of Egypt, and then you come over here and you see uh, Jerusalem, and you see that's where uh, Israel is, you see that where all the Galatian churches would be. That just gives you a little picture of the Roman Empire in the first century. And so think in terms of the Romans expanded, they, they conquered peoples to make this happen. Uh, Secondly, Roman justice was for all citizens of the empire. This is one of the unique things about Roman law. The law was for everybody. This was unique because for the first time, all these different nations were required to come under one law. All of them had different laws, and they sometimes contradicted each other. But now, everybody has to have the same law, and everybody's accountable to it. Thirdly, Roman law gave a sense of fairness and a sense of right and wrong. There was a reasonable sense of fairness and a reasonable sense of right and wrong. And people got to like that. They could begin to count on this is right, this is wrong, this has consequences. Seemed even reasonable. Also, under number four, under Roman law, prized Roman citizenship expanded to other peoples. Roman citizens didn't just have to be from Rome. Uh, Roman, Roman citizenship had a great deal of benefits and allowed you a lot of privileges in the Roman Empire. And Roman citizenship was available to people who just didn't live in Rome or were from Rome, but it could be from other people in the, in the empire. They could become Roman citizens. It didn't make any difference what your race was. Now, it wasn't easy to become a Roman citizen because you could be, uh, somebody could be your benefactor, somebody could appoint you to Roman citizenship, in some, you could legally buy it in some cases. In some cases, you could illegally buy it. It was not always fair. I didn't say it was always fair. But there was citizenship available to many different peoples. Number five, Roman law fused all peoples together regardless of the race. Um, everyone was treated with the same law regardless of their race, which was kind of unique in ancient times. I didn't say it was done perfectly. I didn't say they didn't have class struggles, and I didn't say they didn't have slaves. 
but they had Roman law and everybody was under the law. Uh, number six, this is really an important one. Um, the peace of Rome, the Pax Romano, was maintained by the Roman military from 27 BC to 180 AD. 180 AD. 206 years. The peace of Rome. Now, the first time I encountered this was I was in the fourth grade. And uh, this made such an impact on me studying this in the fourth grade. Now, some of you don't like history, I know that. Um, this made such a profound impact on me. I went home and named my dog Caesar after Julius Caesar. And after two years, my dog died, was executed by a car. That's how dogs used to die. And um, I, I named my next dog Augustus after Augustus Caesar, and I called him Gus. And, you know, then I studied this in high school, and I studied it in college, and I ended up studying it at seminary with the Bible. It was amazing. Um, but this peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, for 206 years, the Roman military enforced the Roman law effectively. They executed justice and they executed lawbreakers, and therefore there ended up being a major time of peace for 206 years. This is a unique time in history. It's going to be a very unique time in history for the gospel. That's where we're headed with this. During the time of Roman peace, Roman roads were built throughout the Roman Empire. should throw that map back up, but we won't. Roman roads just crisscross this whole empire. Why? To get Roman soldiers anywhere in the empire quickly. And it, get the, they built good roads. The roads lasted for hundreds of years. They just... You wanted an army to go across them over and over and over again, and they lasted. And you can still see real Roman roads today. Um, the roads were provided a good transportation system throughout the empire for commerce and new ideas. We, they didn't have the Internet. The way, you, the way you communicated was by roads. Everything was carried by hand. And this, this opens a whole new network through Regions of peoples that had never communicated before. Uh, during the time of peace, the Roman army kept the roads safe for travel, while the Roman navy kept the Mediterranean Sea safe from pi pirates. So now, for the first time, and people can travel from nation to nation. They couldn't do that before. It was very dangerous. You couldn't trust going into a different country. So here's the spiritual significance. Roman law helped set the context for a Christian spiritual foundation. For example, we have a biblical view that all people are sinners under God's law. Well, that was easy for people in the Roman Empire. They understood. They were responsible and accountable to law. And that if they break the law, there's going to be consequences. Not a big deal. We have a biblical view that all people are offered justice under God's law through Jesus Christ. People understood the need for justice under Roman law, and they expected justice. Citizenship, another spiritual concept, citizenship in God's kingdom can be gained by all kinds of people and all people groups. That was a new concept, but they began to see this in the Roman Empire. Cit uh, you could have citizenship in the Roman Empire, and citizenship in heaven was an easy concept to understand from the benefits of Roman citizenship. Secondly, the peace of Rome helped set the stage for rapid expansion of the gospel. This is interesting. The gospel spread quick, quickly by land and sea under the authority of Rome. Rome made it happen. The gospel moved quickly on the roads and uh, on the Mediterranean Sea. The roads were safe. The Apostle Paul uh, went on three major missionary trips through the Roman Empire in the book of Acts. Read about them. And hundreds of Christians traveled this safely for the purpose of spreading the gospel. Never before in history was this possible. Um, the Apostle Paul, as a Roman citizen, you know this from the book of Acts, was always under the protection of Roman law, even though he was a Jew born in Syria. Think about that. And he could go anywhere in Rome because he was a citizen of Rome. Paul's citizenship gave him both a passport and a visa to foreign countries. 
The Roman army and navy provided vast communication networks throughout the empire. Roman soldiers took the gospel to Great Britain. Think about this. What happened was soldiers, people in the navy, came to faith in Christ. Then they got on their ships or gathered with their army, and they they moved, and they went places. And with them went the gospel, and they shared that all the way to Britain, which is way north in uh, the Roman Empire in those days. Uh, Let's look at the map one more time. So Britain's way up there on the top left. And you can just see the Rome. Just think about the roads and how it spread. This is what happens so fast in the first and second centuries. The expansion of the gospel. The point is, in the sovereignty of God, Rome provided a political environment favorable for the spread of the gospel and Christianity. They persecuted the Christians. Also, it wasn't perfect. But this enabled the gospel to expand in the sovereignty of God, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son just at the right time. God also made preparations in the intellectual world, the Greek world. I'll go fast through this. Koine Greek was a lingua franca of this time period. Some of you know or remember that lingua franca means it's the language of commerce. So I can... Pretty much in the world today, English is the most common language used in commerce. makes it easy for us. That's why we teach English as a second language to many countries, which also makes it easy for us to share the gospel. Koine Greek was a simple language, not classical Greek, but a simple Greek language, and it was used in commerce everywhere in the Roman Empire. So now we have one language in the empire, one law, one language. For the first time, Um, Greek philosophy was the most influential thought of the day. The Greek mind was viewed as superior by the Romans uh, to Roman thought. Now, let me just some of this you think, why is this important? The Romans didn't even like their own culture. The Romans looked at the Greeks as heroes, they valued Greek art, Greek literature, uh, Greek music, Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy turned people away from Roman and Greek mythology. You know, where mythology is about gods and the whims of gods and what they like and what they don't like and how do they feel today. Well, Greek philosophy started people to think and be rational. Is this a good idea or not a good idea? And they begin to reject mythology. Um, Greek philosophy eventually turned people... Oh, so. Greek philosophers asked great questions of life. This is what attracted me to philosophy in college. The great questions of life. Because I didn't know people who were asking the great questions of life. The Greek philosophers did ask the great questions. Who are we? Where did we come from? Why are we here? What's the purpose in life? What is truth? Is there such a thing as truth? Can we know truth? Now some of you may think those are dumb questions. People don't really give a lot of thought to some of those things sometimes. And um, questions like, is there right and wrong? Is, is there such a thing as ethics? Are ethics good? And so these questions were being asked by philosophers. There was a lot of interest in that. So spiritual significance. First of all, Koine Greek was the language that God chose for the New Testament. So our New Testament Bible was originally written in Koine Greek. What is that going to mean? It means that thing can go anywhere in the Roman Empire and be read by reasonable people or potentially reasonable people. It enabled the gospel to spread quickly to all peoples through the Roman Empire. It allowed the distribution of the scriptures. Now, when we think of distribution of scriptures, we think, we think of the Internet. We think of um, boxes of Bibles. Well, the way they distribute distributed the scriptures where six people sat in a room and one people read them aloud and the other six wrote them down. And then they checked them all and eventually they had one book, a scroll, and until they got the whole New Testament. They were extremely valuable. But they were copied and they were distributed throughout the Roman Empire. Um, Greek philosophy set the stage for a moral religion because people were interested in justice and right and wrong. They were open to morality, which is going to come from the scriptures. 
uh, Greek philosophy set the framework for the idea of the invisible spiritual world. We, we don't often see this. This made sense to me because of my interest in Greek philosophy. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle were big names. And they dabbled in the discussion about moral absolutes. That's a big question of today. Are there moral absolutes? Yes! Um, and this whole idea of the invisible world, this is what uh, Plato and Socrates talked about, the, that the idea of an absolute was, was invisible. And uh, it opens the idea of the invisible spiritual world, the, the spiritual reality that not everything that happens is visible. Um, and then ultimately, Greek philosophy left people spiritually bankrupt and hungry to have their hearts filled with real truth. God made uh, preparations in the religious world. This is the last major section. The Roman religion. Here's the interesting thing. This is kind of uh, funny. The Romans, you know how... People who are really in the know, they, what do they do? They, they go out and find new ideas and new things. This is what our celebrities do. They come back with a new religion from the East or something. Well, the Romans would go out and conquer these peoples, and they conquered hundreds of them. And they would find out various gods that they liked, and they adapted the gods from the people that they conquered, and they brought them back to Rome, and that was really cool. Everybody had this new religion. On the other hand, the people who got conquered and where the Roman army had invaded and held them captive even for hundreds of years, they rejected the gods that failed them. So the captive people reject and the Romans adapt to new religions. And none of those new religions would last in Rome. Greek religion, uh, people lost interest in Greek mythology in favor of the more intellectual approach of philosophy. Over time, Greek philosophy left people with a spiritual vacuum. Both Roman and Greek religious uh, broad ideas. So here's a significant one. Roman religions, Greek religions, brought ideas of sin, a savior, and redemption. Those are foreign ideas to our culture. They may not be foreign to you, but they are foreign to our culture. And they were becoming prevalent in the Roman Empire in the first century. Lastly, Jewish religion. Jews assumed the existence of God. The Jewish people were a very small nation, very small numerically in the Roman Empire. They had a huge influence. They ex- First of all, they assumed the existence of God. Jews accepted the Old Testament scriptures as God's word. Uh, 39 books of our Bible they accepted in the first century. Uh, Jews provided both family, a family lineage, and a worship system that brought both the Messiah brought forth the Messiah, who was the Christ. So the family line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David the king, Jesus came through their family lineage and a whole lot of other families, just as Scripture prophesied. And there's going to be a worship system, and I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Spiritual significance, Roman and Greek religion. When God sent his son, both Romans and Greeks were spiritually hungry for the truth. First century, when God sent forth his son, people were ready for the biblical concepts of sin, redemption, and the need for a savior. Jewish religion. The Jews understood without reservation there is only one God. Now, this is huge because the first century world was extremely polytheistic. Many gods. Some countries had hundreds of gods. If you go to India, they have thousands and thousands of gods. Um, But the Jews stood out. They were often put to death because they wouldn't worship other gods. They believed in only one God. They were monotheists. The Jewish laws of the Old Testament, this is an interesting one. The Jewish laws of the Old Testament offered the purest ethical system in existence. We don't think about this very much. We think about the rules of the Old Testament. Think about this. The purest ethical system. Think this was really attractive to upper class Gentile women. Think about this. Marriage was about no sexual relations before marriage. That was attractive to women. Marriage was about your husband being faithful to you for a lifetime. One man and one woman, Jewish scriptures. 
That's attractive. The purest ethical system in existence attracted a lot of people after they had seen the bankruptcy of philosophy and the bankruptcy of other religions. Uh, The Jewish people provide the world with the Old Testament scriptures. We've talked about that. They guarded the scriptures. They copied the scriptures. Uh, They they had extremely high value to keep it accurate. The Jewish synagogue provided a natural system for the spread of Christianity. This is the last point right here, last section, synagogue. 586 B.C., the Jewish people were carried into Babylonian captivity. They came up with a plan that wherever there were 10 Jewish males they would meet in a gathering place called a synagogue. And um, they started in 586. And this is carried through until this day. You still find synagogues all around the world. And in the first century, there were synagogues all through the Roman Empire where major cities were. A synagogue was where 10 Jewish males and their families, and sometimes hundreds of Jewish males and their families, came for worship where they read the Scripture Uh, where they came to honor the God of the Old Testament. So why is this important? Well, it's because the Apostle Paul would go to the synagogues and he believed in the Old Testament and he showed from the Old Testament who Jesus was, that he was the promised Messiah. And people came to faith in Christ. It was a very important evangelistic step in the first century. And one of the amazing things happened is that so many people came to faith in Christ through this model of evangelism Some of those synagogues became churches because everybody there were Christians. And and the synagogue buildings became church buildings for worship and teaching of scriptures throughout the Roman Empire. So here's the point. God is still working in our world to carry out his purposes in our lives. Think about this. God is working right now to fulfill his plans in your life. God accomplishes his purposes against evil, against catastrophes, against death, disease. We don't always see what God is doing. We don't always understand what God is doing. And as I said earlier, I don't need to understand everything. I I cannot. God is an infinite God with an infinite mind. If he just downloaded a small portion on me, I would blow up, you know. God is big, he is sovereign, and he can be trusted We are waiting for a time that has not yet come, but it will. He is working for good for those who love him right now. Joseph understood this in Genesis chapter 50. Joseph had suffered greatly because of his brothers who sold him into slavery. After 94 years, this was Joseph's conclusion. You intended harm for me to his brothers who sold him into slavery. And he suffered for years in prison. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. There was a bigger picture. And Joseph couldn't see it. He couldn't see it the first 20 years of his captivity. He couldn't see it when he was 40 years old. But one day he sees it. He could look back and he could see God's hand in his suffering. So, God made plans before creation to send his son and his plans included redemption and his plans include you. God made promises to his people because he wants them to have hope and he wants you to have hope. He promises to be with you. He promises to never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. He promises to meet all your needs in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, 19 and Matthew 6, 33. He promises to answer your prayers as you walk with him, John 15, 1 through 7. God made preparations in the secular world, and he still goes before his people with favor. He orchestrates his purposes in our world. And when we look back someday, we're going to see his handiwork. Someday, what would it be like to look back at 2015 and see what God was doing? We can't see it now. I can't see it now. I don't have a clue. Maybe some general ideas, but I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. I don't know the details he's working out. As we think about 2016, it's not far away, 
Let me remind you of a simple truth. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. It's for by grace you've been saved through faith. Most of you in the room know that. This is not from yourselves. It's, it's a gift of God. It's not about you. It's not about what you do. It's not about how good you are. It's a gift. It's what God did for you. It's what you can receive as a gift. It's not by works. It's not about doing good things and having them count up and see if you've got enough works to get you there. It's not by works so that no one could boast. We don't want any braggers in this. Here's what I wanted us to see for 2016. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. What has God prepared for you to do in this coming year? As you walk with him, what are the things that he wants to do, the things that he wants to accomplish in you because you're walking with him? He he has things that are already planned, already prepared. Who will we see come to faith? in 2016 how will God provide for us corporately and individually in 2016 some of you are worried about that or concerned about it how is God going to provide for you what relationships are going to be reconciled in 2016 how is God going to answer your prayers in 2016 I don't know but God is at work right now and we can trust God fully with our lives for for whatever he wants to do Let's stand and pray. Father, we can look back at the scriptures and we can see how just at the right time you sent your son. You had a plan. You made promises that you kept in detail. And we know that uh, during all that time, there were bad things happening all around God's people. Sometimes bad things happened to God's people. And yet you were at work. You were fulfilling promises. You were accomplishing your purposes in Christ. And God, I pray that for us as uh, we look to the future and as we walk into the future together as a church, as a church family. We believe you are sovereign, that you are in charge. We believe you are good that you are just, that you are righteous. We thank you for your promises. We believe you will provide for us. You will answer our prayers. We believe that you will work good in our lives. We choose to trust you. We choose to walk with you. We ask you for your help and your strength. We ask that you will enable us to be faithful for Jesus' sake. Amen.